So we're looking uh, this spring at the book of Romans and how it can be an antidote to the ordinariness of Christianity, especially in the South where we tend to assign matters of uh, faith to the mundane pile of human living. Uh, But it occurs to me that there's really nothing quite like uh, being insulted to kind of break up an afternoon. You ever thought about this? I mean, just imagine, ladies, that you are having lunch uh, this afternoon with, uh, let's say, an aging parent uh, who, in the midst of the meal, leans over and says to you, you know, you would have been a beauty queen if you didn't have such a big nose. Might break up the afternoon. Or, or let's say, gentlemen, that tomorrow you're in the office and a coworker comes in and puts some work on your desk and says, hey, don't worry, we've given you all the easy cases since you're so far, far behind everybody else in the office in terms of competence. Probably not going to sleep that night, are you? Insults have this way of waking us up, don't they? The word actually means, I looked it up in Latin, uh, to jump or to trample on, because that's what it feels like. We feel run over when somebody insults us this way, and you feel like you got to work out what they just said, and does this have any truth in it, or is this going to continue to torment me? Well, to put it briefly and lightly, Romans 3 feels like an insult. It's because it is. And I want to dive into it this morning so that we don't also be tormented uh, by it in that way. Because for some of you, I realize you're going to resent Paul for this and for the things he's about to say, but you shouldn't. Mostly because in verse 9, he says, What shall we say then? Are we Jews any better off? Which means the Apostle Paul is lumping himself in with the very people he's condemning. Which, by the way, ought to interest you and arouse some suspicion. I mean, Paul is an outstandingly accomplished Jewish leader. What would have happened in his life to make him think, that, think of this of himself? Ah, hold that thought. I think, though, we need to take these words head on and hear what Paul has to say because it unpacks for us a doctrine that theologians have come to refer to as the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity simply says that there is no aspect of your being which is not so adversely affected by sin that you can either say anything in your defense or that you can do anything to kind of work your way out of it. Total depravity. The question is, does the text support this? Well, we're used to talking about the five points of Calvinism. Let's talk about the five points of total depravity this morning from Romans chapter 3. We see, first of all, Paul accusing us of a negative standing, of faulty reasoning, of bad motives, of spoiled output, and then of no fearing. Let's dive into this. Rather difficult journey, but there's, there's something good on the other side. So walk with me. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What does that phrase, under sin, mean? Well, for once, Paul is not talking about the individual sins that someone commits. Those are bad enough, of course. What he's talking about is the way that the universe views you because of your individual sins. But it's a really weird way of talking. What does he mean? Well, to use it by way of illustration, my wife and I were able to go last fall with some friends uh, to Mexico for the first time. Neither of us had ever been. And so we stepped off the plane and headed for customs, right? And as we approached the booth, the person behind the booth there asked for our passports. And I found it interesting in that moment what the guy behind the desk did not say to us. He did not look at us and say, okay, so now tell me about your childhood. Did you come from good parents? Did you respect your parents when you were young? How about your friends? Did you keep good company or did you run with those people? No. The only thing that the customs official wanted to know was what was in our passports because that information gave him all he needed. 
which was mostly our country of origin. That singular fact determined how we were going to be treated in that country, or even if you were going to be let in at all. The point is, for many years, our customs officials have struggled, have they not, with what to do when someone comes to this country from what we call a a country of suspicion because of fear of terrorism. There are other countries now that you can't even get in or out of if you've been exposed to COVID. So Paul is saying from the very outset, look, for the moment, set aside your sins. Stop thinking about your addictions and your failures and your faults and realize that when you check in with God, It's not that you are from a country of suspicion. You're from a country of guilt. And that is that the universe is against you and holds you in contempt. (laughs) Now that's insulting, incredibly insulting. And so the question is, is Paul justified in talking this way? Well, verses 10 through 18 give us seven quotes, interesting seven number there, from the Old Testament to try to pull, uh, pull off this point. So let's look at the second sort of aspect. He also says, secondly, that we are struggling with faulty reasoning. Look at verse 11. Paul opens up by saying, no one understands. What's he saying? What he's saying is, is that sin has also made us unable to think properly about ourselves and the world around us. Theologians refer to this as the noetic effects of sin. This is the way in which sin has sort of marred my ability to think rationally. And logically, Paul is saying, you're not thinking correctly. You've missed it. You're not being clear-headed, we might say. Look, I recognize that for many of us, we think, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Christianity is complicated. I have questions with it. For others, those questions are so acute, you're thinking about leaving. I mean, if you have family members who've walked away from the faith because they couldn't get their questions answered. First of all, you've come to the right place. If at church we're not entertaining people's doubts, then what's it all for? But secondly, what I want you to notice is to hear in particular what Paul is saying. Because saying, is it at least possible that your problems with Christianity may not so much be due to the problems in the message itself, but actually to biases that keep you from looking at the information as if it is plausible? Give an example. I had uh, in college, I have uh, from college, a, the largely useless degree of communication. My father, before he passed away, was able to share with me uh, his disappointment when, someone, when your son comes home and says, Dad, I'm majoring in communications. Oh, joy. Um, that'll be wonderful. Someone to take care of us when we're old, right? But I'll say this, what I did glean from my communication degree was how theorists often talk about how it is that people put up what is known as a field of plausibility. Now, what's that? Well, it's simply this idea that your convictions and your beliefs determine what you will and will not see in someone else's reasoning. Take, for example, someone who is clinically depressed. You have a conversation with them and you go to them and you say things like this, well, Hey, you know, you really ought not feel this way. You're intelligent. You have people around you who love you. You're outgoing, etc. But you can talk all you like, right? But for some reason, the most you know, affective barrage of comments, they just don't get in. Why? Well, because the depression has set up a field of plausibility where certain things, I'm sorry, are just not going to get in. Your encouragement falls on deaf ears, not because it isn't true. They all may be absolutely true. 
but because the other convictions won't let those thoughts in. That's what Paul is saying. In verse 11, Paul is saying the same thing. Humanity, whether it's from its religious expression or its irreligious expression, has set up a false field of plausibility around the very idea of God. He has the guts to suggest that you and I are not objective observers of reality. Humans, he's saying, have been equipped with this anti-God bias that colors all of their thinking about God. Which means, among other things, that when Christianity starts to sound a little weird to me, and I feel doubts coming up in me about it, Paul is saying, but it may be good for you to doubt your doubts as well. No one understands, he says. I'm sorry, but that's insulting. Thirdly, then he goes on to get even deeper than that. And that is he says that we have bad motives as well. Look what he says there. No one seeks God. I think that's insulting because, quite frankly, it seems like there's a lot of people who are seeking God in our day and age. But this is very crucial to understand because seeking something from God is not the same thing as seeking God. Paul is not saying no one seeks spirituality. Or no one seeks for someone to answer their prayers. Or no one seeks personal peace and and well-adjusted children. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying everyone who seeks God in the end is just doing so for their own self-interest. It's not him that we want. It's the life that he can give us in return. And that in the end, when it all comes down to it, all of our spiritual posturing, it's all about us. Now look, here's the deal. According to the Bible, we are creatures of God's creation. And for that reason, his sovereignty means that we owe him our allegiance. And therefore, we take delight in him because he is our God. That's the only sole reason for for crying out to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British uh, Bible teacher, points out this simple fact when he says that just because I'm praying doesn't mean that I'm seeking God. Just because I'm crying out doesn't mean that I'm seeking God. Even if I'm reading my Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm seeking God. So Paul is sweeping all of humanity under this blanket of condemnation that says, everybody's just out for themselves. And we trample on each other on our way to our own ends. Even my religious actions, he's saying, are done in the name of self-interest. I really started thinking about this week. I don't know of another religion that achieves this kind of condemnation. It's unnerving. It also, though, I think helps explain what Paul means when he says in verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. An objection, by the way, that was leveled against Christianity from the uh, late uh, popular atheist Christopher Hitchens, who would say that's ridiculous. There's all kinds of atheists who do all kinds of good without any reference to God whatsoever. I think Paul would say, well, sure, there is a sense in which people can generally act in terms of a common good, but capital G good, something that was glorifying to God, is impossible because human beings are always in it for themselves. Rebellious humans are always trying to be a rival to God's glory. Anybody insulted yet? Because wait, there's more. Number four, we find that there's also spoiled output. Look at verses 13 and four, output. Look at 13 and 14. What Paul gets fixated on is the tongue, the words that come out of our mouth. Listen to these flattering things. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now look, Paul is talking a whole lot more than just foul language that we might say to one another or the lack of encouragement that we fail to give one another, although that would certainly be enough. I think Paul's after something a little more subtle in this sense. Because when you look through the New Testament, you find that in the Bible's view of you, the human being, your mouth, your tongue, and your words, it functions as the monitor of your heart. Here's what I mean by this. Think about your laptop. You have two parts to your laptop when you unfold it. You have the bottom part that contains the the guts of the computer. But you also have the screen, the monitor. What's its purpose? It's there to show you what's inside. It's there to show you its capacity and its power and its true nature. So throw that in with Jesus in Luke 6.45 when he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Listen to this, though. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Did you catch that? What Paul is saying is, you will know what's in your heart by the things that you say. Your, heart is its, your, your mouth is the monitor. Now look, I am on a campaign, as those of you who attend here regularly know, to change the language that we use to describe the human self, especially as it pertains to this thing that the Bible calls the heart. We think the heart is just my feelings, but for the Bible it's so much more than that. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow all of the springs of your life. Every output of your life, whether it's your thinking, your feeling, or your choices, comes from this place. So what is your heart? Well, your heart is the place of your fascination. It's the place of your loyalties. It's where your commitments and your, your infatuations, it's where your desires and longings come from. Your heart, therefore, is the controlling mechanism of your character and how the Bible will essentialize you. So look, if you want to know the condition of anyone's heart or your own, just check the monitor. (laughs) Look at the screen, right? In other words, watch your tongue. Watch what comes out. And I'm not just talking about the loud people, you know, who use cuss words all the time. What we're talking about is the way we talk to each other. It's even possible for me to be one of those people if I consider myself shy. I don't really talk much less. Well, that's okay because a quiet mouth can actually conceal a whole lot of fear on the inside. And sometimes the most confident sounding of us conceal a whole lot of insecurity. Here's the bottom line. We have locked onto things that were never meant to occupy that place in our allegiance. And because we've locked onto those things, it means that we have contempt for one another. And it comes out in the way that I speak. Pastor Colin Smith wrote on the tongue a while back, and I've been using it forever, where he says, there's basically four ways in which our tongues can do damage to people. The first one, he says, is through what we might call polite lies. You know, we call it flattery, right? But with our tongues, what we're saying to people in flattery are things that are not true. And when we do that, we withhold the truth from people, and we cause them to interact with a vision of the world that's not true. Never mind how condescending it is, treating them like they can't handle the truth. (laughs) What it does is it demeans the person. It is a trampling on their dignity not to give them the truth. Flattery. Secondly, there's exaggeration, he says. Exaggeration is when, you know how you 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 sometimes sort of slightly embellish the truth of a story to kind of put yourself in the best light? 
It's interesting. Exaggeration is kind of the opposite of flattery because you're not telling somebody else. You're telling yourself something. And actually, if you do it long enough, eventually you don't have accurate self-knowledge. It's self-destructive because you're self-deceived. Third way in which our tongues hurt people is gossip. We're, all, we're awfully confused about gossip. People think that gossip is someone talking about me. That's not gossip. You're a public person. You're able to be talked about. It happens. Gossip is when I talk about someone and I delight in their misfortune as I do. You know that thought when you think about them and kind of, you know, in comparison, I look pretty good compared to them. That's gossip. And what happens is it's a way of putting someone down, measuring up to them, creating more merit measurements. Finally, we have what he calls fits of anger. You know, these explosions. Look, go back to that last time when you made that decision. And let's be honest, it was a decision just to kind of let it go for a moment. You're in the midst of something, you find something irritating, you're kind of like, it's time to let this one go. And you release it a little bit. And it starts out as a small thing. You just want to let the irritation out. But eventually, as you're deciding to vent all along, it starts to snowball. And Paul says, what it's snowballing out there is an open grave. And what that means is, it's not satiated once it's spoken. It keeps going. How many times on the other end of sort of the time in which you decided you were going to let it all out, did you look back on what you had said and, and like, well, why did I say that? I don't even think that's true. The point is, it reveals a sickness in the heart. And what Paul is saying is, if you watch your words, it'll let you know what your heart is all about. So there's a spoiled output that comes from us. And finally, what we see Paul saying is, there's no fear before their eyes. Tim Keller sort of sums up what Paul is saying in this, about our whole predicament in verse 18. Because he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is his summary statement. This is Paul drawing off a little bit of his Jewish background and this whole idea of the topic of the fear of the Lord. You've heard that reference in the Old Testament. What is that? Well, unfortunately, to our ears, it sounds like we're saying that we're supposed to be scared of God and scared of the Lord. But that's not how the Bible uses that phrase. And I can give you a couple of examples. For instance, in Psalm 119.38, it says this, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Well, that's strange. I mean, we fear the Lord when he confirms his promise. I would have thought God confirming his promise would be a good thing. Why would that make me scared of him if that's what the fear of the Lord means? Let's try another one. Psalm 130, verse 4. He says, but with you there is forgiveness, talking to God, that you may be feared. Well, now, getting forgiveness from God is a good thing. So why would I be scared of him when I got forgiveness from him? So whatever the fear of the Lord is, it is increased when we see his salvation, when we see his promise, when we understand his wonder and his love. Which means that the, that the fear of the Lord is a whole lot more what you and I would call respect, love, the loyalty that we sense, the obedience that comes out of a joyful heart. In other words, we fear the Lord when we accept his goodness to us. We fear the Lord when we accept his discipline towards us. In other words, the fear of the Lord is that knowledge that comes to us that only the gospel can give us. Now look, that's a little buzzword there, the word gospel, that we're going to unpack a lot in the weeks to come. But I wanted to start by giving you what I think is the most essential message of what the gospel is. The gospel says two things. Number one, 
You are more sinful and more wretched and more depraved than you could possibly imagine. I know that doesn't sound like good news, but that's where it starts. But it also says that you are more loved and accepted and forgiven than you could ever dare dream. And both of those things are true at the same time. And the fear of the Lord is what affirms you into the sky, even while it humbles you to the dust. That's what the Bible means by fear. You're too humble to be self-centered, <laughs> but you're too affirmed to need that affirmation. That's the new, that's the brand new sort of self-image that a Christian gets when the gospel takes over him. Okay, so here's the question. Do I fear the Lord? That's what we all ought to be asking this morning. Do I fear the Lord? Am I a person whose life before God is marked by godly fear? Well, guess what? Paul gives us a way to know how that's the case. And he says it right there in verse 19. You ready for this? It'll shut your mouth. <laughs> the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, here it is. The inertia of the law God's law in the life of a human being is to stop your mouth from making excuses. You know you've met the fear of the Lord when you shut up. Now fear, bear with you for just a moment because in my house I grew up, shut up was a bad phrase and the children's director is frowning at me even as I do so. He shouldn't have said that. Look at your children, tell them not to say that. But here's the deal, the gospel is trying to get you to do just that. The whole point of the doctrine of total depravity is to get us to shut up. Oh, I can do it, God. I, you know, I know I can turn it around. I'll do better next time. I mean, I gave it my best. I'm trying as hard as I can. Shh. Stop. Hush. Or, I'm so awful. I mean, you don't even know what I've done. I mean, how could you ever love me? I mean, what possible hope do I have that you're still with me? Shh. Shut up. <laughs> Hush. The only reason that we think that we can't shut up is because we still think that we have something to offer God. We're going to unpack this really deeply in the next three or four weeks, so stick with me here. But George Whitfield, the, um, the old American evangelist, used to say that anybody can repent of their sins. Anybody does that. He says, but only a Christian repents of their righteousness. Ah, now that's different. And is it possible that one of the reasons why I have no peace is because I may have admitted that I do wrong, but I haven't admitted that the stuff that I thought that I was doing right is just as tainted by bad motives and selfishness as anything else that I do. Because if all I've done is confess my wrongdoing, then really all I am is back on probation. I'm still in trouble. In other words, I don't have believing faith. What I have is a program of moral reform. But here's the kicker. That's not Christianity. It's not what being a follower of Jesus is about. Christianity is not, well, you know, pastor, I'm trying. Rather, it's I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I came up empty every time because what flows out of me seems to be this consistent river of filth, and so who am I to condescend to anybody? Who am I to look down on anyone from another race? Who am I to sort of get cocky about my own political party? Who am I to give up on that family member who seems dead set on destroying themselves? Who am I? 
Look, we see the fruit of the gospel when we see closed mouths. So has the fear of the Lord closed your mouth this morning? That's the question. Now look, before we finish here this morning, I just want, I want, to, I want to address one simple question that I feel you might be asking, which is, why in the world did I come to church this morning? That's okay. You can ask that question. What possible benefit could a doctrine that is this insulting of total depravity be for God's people? Why would you ever mess with this? I think there's two things. The first one is this. The doctrine of total depravity changes the conversation that so many Bible-believing people have about their Christian life, especially in the South. For most conservative Christians, when we start dealing with the sins of our hearts, what we almost immediately get preoccupied with is the question of our status. Well, I don't know. Am I in? Am I out? Am I really a Christian or am I just a faker? And don't get me wrong, there are times in which those questions have their place, but they make a lousy path to the change that God wants to make inside of us. It is no path to holiness. In its place, though, the doctrine of total depravity begins to recenter the convert conversation from dealing with not just sort of this question of my status, but to begin dealing with freedom with the power of repentance. In other words, it changes me to this conversation of saying, how is it that I go about killing this terminal disease that I have working inside my own soul? What the Puritans used to call mortification, the putting to death of sin, or bringing to life those things which actually give life and don't destroy the world around me. What the Puritans used to call vivification, bringing things to life. In other words, once you get total depravity, you get off of this treadmill of trying to worry whether I'm in or whether I'm out because you realize the fact that I'm having any of these thoughts at all means that God has done something in me. And so now what do we do? What does repentance look like? What does it mean for me to be marked by repentance? Now here's the next question. How does it do that? Well, that brings me to my second point. And that is that total depravity will rid your heart of what we might call moralistic Christianity. I mean, let's be honest, from that list that we just went through, the painful list, insulting, do you honestly think you're going to deal with something this pervasive, this insidious, this endemic, with a little bit of moral reform, with a little bit of, I don't know, maybe next time I'll try harder. I know I'm going to join that church. (laughs) Or I know I'm going to start a read through the Bible in a year program. Really? Now, mind you, those are great things to do. I'd commend all of them for us to do. By all means, let's try harder. Read our Bibles more. Come join the church, by all means. But as a program of spiritual reform to get God on your good side, those things are woefully inadequate. They won't do it. Why? Because they're still built on the foundation of someone who thinks they can do enough. Total depravity ends that conversation. It kicks the foundation right out from under you. And what I hope that you're thinking at this very moment is, is like, well, well um, so what's the alternative? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> and it's one that we're going to deal with in the weeks to come. It's going to end this. My only application this week is say, make sure you come back. Because we still have something that's hanging out there, a way of actually God dealing with me that's not on the basis of my efforts, but rooted in grace. How in the world could that happen? Come on back. Let's talk about it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, give us the grace then to even see that. Because if it's true, this condition that we're in, it may be even now that we're so distracted that we kind of want to walk out and do something else. And we get that. You, the text just told us that's, that's, that's how we are. So we pray that you would give us grace, Father, to simply dive in. Maybe perhaps to own something that's very painful to own. That our insult, our, our, our walking out thinking of the audacity of that preacher. Or thinking to ourselves, well, that's why I don't go here. We walk out of these kinds of confrontations and we do everything we can <laughs> through that field of plausibility to deny it. But maybe through your spirit this morning, we might see on the other side a sense of clarity in the letting go, a sense of joy in the final admission of true defeat. And then maybe on the other side, some grace that might heal us. Would you show us that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.